1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic Studies and we chat with its author. Among the most powerful and equally insidious aspects of the new global politics of religion is the discourse of religious moderation that seeks to produce moderate religious subjects at ease with the aims and fantasies of liberal secular politics. For Muslim communities in the U.S. and beyond, few expectations and pressures have carried more weight and urgency than that to pass the test of moderation. In her brilliant new book, Making Moderate Islam, Sufism Service and the Ground Zero Mosque Controversy, Rosemary Corbett, visiting professor at the Bard Prison Initiative, interrogates the tensions and ambiguities surrounding the moderate Muslim discourse. Far from an exclusively post-9-11 phenomenon, She presents the long-running historical and political forces that have shaped the demand for moderation, especially in the equation of Sufism with moderate Islam. The strength of this book lies in the way it combines a deep knowledge of American religious history with the historical narrative and contemporary dynamics of American Islam. Written with breathtaking clarity, this book will spark important conversations in multiple fields, including the study of Islam, American religion, and Secularism Studies. Here now is my conversation with Professor Rosemary Corbett. Hello, Rosemary. How are you doing?
0: I'm great. Thank you. How are you?
1: Uh, very good, Rosemary. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for being on uh, New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, really, really look forward uh, to this conversation on this uh, very important book. Uh, and uh, um, not only is it a, lyrical, a lyrically written book, but also uh, contains uh, such important analysis that I'm sure will spark many conversations for uh, uh, the coming uh, few years. So we have a new we have a tradition on new books in Islamic Studies, Rosemary, uh, where our first question is uh, biographical. Uh, could you share with our listeners, Rosemary, how did you become a scholar interested in Islam and American religion, and how did you get to write this particular book?
0: Uh, sure, I will try to be a little bit brief because that is a long story. Um, but uh, let's see. I'm, in American religion, I My uh, degrees are mostly in American religion. I identify as an Americanist. Um, And I was doing my master's at uh, the GTU and taking classes on American history at UC Berkeley, uh, studying religion and politics after kind of a long trajectory toward that route of of, um, being in a religiously affiliated college, thinking I was going to go possibly into um, social service work connected to a religious institution, something like that. And deciding that at the end of the day, I, I didn't really like the politics of the religious institution. And I couldn't abide them. So I decided to become an academic instead and study the politics um, and religion and politics in the United States. So I was at uh, I was at Cal and at the GTU looking at PhD programs and um, applied to history, uh, anthropology, and religious studies programs. Uh, and in this book, you see all of those methodologies show up. We don't usually speak of... Um, religious studies as having necessarily a coherent methodology or there's some debate about that. But for me, it was a perfect placement because it allowed me the flexibility of combining um, American studies, history, American history and anthropology, which is what I um, did in this project. And anyhow, I was applying to all these programs and um, Columbia offered me the most funding. And so, you know, some of the aspects of how I came to this project were intuitive about being, seeing something that looked like it was going to be, um, an important subject of discussion or an important phenomenon to discuss. But some were just incidental, such as the fact that I was from a working class background and didn't want to end up in debt and wanted to go to a place that was going to give me the best funding. So I ended up at Columbia. Um, And my first uh, visit actually to New York was October of 2001. So I did not intend to study Islam, um, but, and it wasn't because of 9-11 that I did actually, even though I, I had dear friends who survived that attack. Um, but you know, it was, it did color my experience to my first time in this city in New York, which is still my home now. Um, 15 years later, 16 years later was when it was a city in a great deal of shock. Um, and my first month at Columbia, there was an interreligious, um, memorial service for victims of nine 11 at Riverside church, which is an esteemed institution and it's right next door to Columbia. Um, and so I went cause I had personal connections to this event and it now the city I live in. And I was curious about religion and politics and Dick Cheney was there and Hillary Clinton was there. Uh, And everybody, I knew Muslims had, had died in the attacks as well, but everybody at that service, which was an official city service um, was speaking in terms of Judeo-Christian heritage. And it was so conspicuous. Uh, And the only person trying to interrupt this was the, was the then senior pastor, James Forbes. And it was conspicuous and it was curious also because the idea of America having a Judeo-Christian heritage is a really recent idea. This is something that was uh, promoted really by the federal government during world war II, And then, you know, there were some murmurings about it before that, but um, it's really only a 20th century invention. And it doesn't, as we're tragically seeing right now, the fact that there's been this narrative of Judeo-Christian heritage for this country and the identification of America as a Judeo-Christian country doesn't mean um, just because there's been federal promotion and elite promotion that there's popular acceptance of Jews in the way that or Catholics or any other religious minorities in the ways that we would hope that that framing would reflect. And and we're seeing that very distinctly at the moment as we're experiencing another surge of nativism in this country. But anyhow, um, a few months later, Forbes had an imam come speak at his pulpit on a Sunday morning. And so I went. And that imam was Faisal Abdu'l-Raouf, who was at the time the head of the ASMA Society, um, and about to found a new organization called the Cordoba Initiative. And he was on the verge of publishing his 2004 book, What's Right with Islam? um, A New Vision for Muslims on the West. And he was really positioning himself uh, as a spokesperson, if not the spokesperson for moderate Islam in the United States. But what caught my attention was the for his framing of this as um as a natural development because America was not exactly was not actually just Judeo-Christian it was Abrahamic which is a term that is so common now but it was the first time i think i'd heard that This was 2004 uh, and you can't call you can't call Imam Faisal as he's known or Sheikh Faisal as he's known among his Sufi dervishes you can't call him um really a, a member of the the hoi polloi or the grassroots in most terms. He's an elite among American Muslims, um, and he's an elite internationally now. But at the time, he wasn't the public figure that he is now. And um, given that promotion of Judeo-Christian heritage came from the top down, from it was a political strategy from the federal government, from foreign policy experts, from the military, uh, the fact that an imam who was not connected to any of these institutions was making this claim seemed to me an interesting development. And I wanted to know what the politics were of it. Um, So I I accepted his invitation to go to the, I'm sorry, this is such a long answer to go to his uh, mosque in Tribeca. Um, And I wanted to see, you know, not only what the politics and the history were of these ideas, but how they were working for his community and whether his community was, was actually um, embracing these ideas also. And the first, I'm sorry, did you want to interject? No, no, please go ahead. The first time I went, he wasn't there. He was actually beginning to travel more frequently. Um, He had started working with the State Department, um, possibly not quite at that point, but he was traveling quite a bit, giving lectures, promoting what was about to be published, his new book about to be published. And so I met with the assistant imam, who was an emergency room doctor who grew up in the U.S., uh, and one of Ralph's Sufi dervishes, this 65-year-old self-described Catholic boy from Brooklyn who'd converted. um, And they... I told them about my interests in possibly doing a project on this, which became my dissertation. Uh, And they spent the afternoon just filling me with all of these different um, accounts of how Sufism could promote interreligious harmony and how this version of um, moderate Islam that that Faisal was promoting was really the answer to um, some of the situations that we were seeing at the time. And they didn't use the term moderate quite so much. They usually use the term balanced. Um, but they also invited me to Ralph's Sufi group service that evening, which I went to uh, in in Ralph's wife's apartment on the Upper West Side. Uh, and his wife, Daisy Khan, was um, a co-founder of the Asma Society, as was Faiz Khan, the, the uh, assistant director or the assistant imam who invited me. And there I was given a mock-up of the book that was about to come out. And on the back of it was this description of how this imam demonstrates the ways that Islam is compatible with uh, American democracy and capitalism. And that, that blurb was later replaced by a quote from Karen Armstrong when the book actually came out. But for me, um, I was immediately curious now, not just about the politics, but about the economics of this positioning of moderate Islam and of um, Abrahamic Americanness, because As I mentioned, I had this working class background. I studied at Berkeley. Um, I had been a labor organizer among immigrant farm workers. I had directed a homeless program for homeless youth in a different life. Um, So by the time I got to Columbia, you know, I I lived in southern Harlem. I was curious about political dynamics, economic dynamics, um, and decided to make this my project, looking into the history and the economics and the politics of this um, framing as well as, this was a very ambitious project, it turned into a 600-page dis- dissertation, but the book is only 200 pages, um, as well as looking at how this was working among Rogue's community. Um, and because by the time I finished it in t- 2010 and defended my dissertation, there is this new development, um, the Contested Islamic Community Center, it took me a few more years to wind all of these strands together into a concise narrative um, that could also be accessible. Uh, and it was important to me even though i'd written a 600 page intellectual history of ideas about moderate islam since the cold war and how these influenced Raouf, it was important to me that this not be jargony and that it not get buried under you know these layers of academia and the ways we speak to each other as scholars and that it be accessible for a general audience as well
1: so rosemary let's get to the heart of the central arguments uh, that you that you uh, advance in this book and one of the key themes of the book of course is the Uh, problem of this category of uh, moderate Islam and the construction of this idea of moderate Islam. And you do so uh, particularly in the context of uh, the history of American religion and narratives of assimilation that uh, uh, several religious traditions have gone through and Islam being sort of uh, one of the recent episodes in this whole uh, uh, construction of the moderate religion which is compatible with uh, U.S. capitalism and democracy and so on. So, So the question is, what are uh, the central uh, conceptual and political problems uh, that you identify with this desire to carve a moderate Islam, uh, which would be compatible with and at peace with uh, American narratives of good religion and ideal religion?
0: Well, my goodness, of course, um, first, there's no one narrative of ideal religion. Um, What is real and ideal American religion? This idea is constantly changing and, and constantly contested. So, trying to map moderate Islam in terms of any one narrative is going to automatically be exclusionary in some way, if not multiple ways, which is uh, what I try to show. Um, and the, the narrative that row uses as a template is one that was initially promoted by uh, progressive era Americans, you know, like late 19th, early 20th century Americans who believed that all immigrants could become American if only they became Protestant because they conflated as as, Kambi's Ghani Basiri wonderfully points out in his history of American Islam, they conflated Protestantism, progress, and whiteness um, with civility, with Americanness. And uh, protesting the conflation of these ideas, Catholic and Jewish Americans tried to often show that they were just as civilized and capable of progressing. And this often involved emphasizing free market capitalism to some extent and, and Protestant work ethics and uh, all sorts of aesthetics that were also very racialized. Um, these debates continued into the early decades of the 20th century at a time when other religious Americans of various stripes are arguing that real religion is not capitalist. It's actually more, um, it's more concerned with social we- welfare in different ways, but those are not the, the dominant voice. Um, the dominant voice is really the, this narrative of meritocracy and, um, and progress and capitalism and um as i mentioned in world during world war ii we see the u.s government begin to promote a larger conception whereas the the u.s was formerly unapologetically protestant um and very nativist um and it was it was the progressives who were who were claiming that you could be an american if only you converted to like this protestant christian whiteness the the non-progressives were saying you can't be american at all um but in world war ii we see um the government and um, the military promoting this larger conception of Americanness to try to enlist uh, literally in the military and otherwise um, Jews and Catholics and uh, Christians of various stripes into the project of American nationalism during a conflict situation. And this of course is, is still exclusionary if not just in the, the economic framing, but also in the sense that for example, Um, There's no room for secular Jews in this. If we're all united under this ethical framing in a certain way um, that is an outgrowth of religion, there's no room for secular Jews. And that's that's not incidental. Um, It's tied to the economic aspect because secular Jews were often suspected of being communists. Um, And this is this is an issue that haunts them as we move into the uh, 1970s. So we still see the idea of what is real religion contested and economically and politically. But there is, there is a dominant narrative that um, is promoted by many elites and it shifts from this, uh, progressive Protestant to Judeo Christian. Um, and it's this, this history that Rauf is tapping into when we get to the 1970s, we see Catholics and Jews who actually were formerly socialist, who become, um, aggressively capitalist and neoliberal trying to, um, write histories that portray their communities in the same terms uh, and to trying to gain for Catholics and Jews some measure of um, popular acceptance. Even though there's this narrative at the governmental level and it, among some elites, there's still not popular acceptance and they're very aware of that. So this um, in the 1970s, one of the ways this is happening, uh, and these are the people that Ralph draws from, one of the ways this is happening is that um, conservatives of various stripes are are reacting to Johnson's affirmative action legislation and are arguing um, that real religion supports real capitalism, not affirmative action, and are, again, emphasizing the meritocracy of American society and claiming that, you know, as marginalized Catholics and Jews, they climbed the economic and social ladder by dint of their own hard work and resources, which is, completely not true. Most marginalized whites of all stripes climbed the economic and social ladder in the 20th century due to uh, depression-era social welfare legislation, thanks to FDR, to the GI Bill, all sorts of legislation that um, non-whites were either explicitly or implicitly exempted from. So um, it's in this moment in the 1970s and early 80s where there's this backlash against affirmative action legislation that these conservative Catholics and Jews are trying to increase social acceptance for their groups by proving they're not communists, like um, Jews have suspected of being, or that um, uh, Catholics are suspected of being, because of liberation theology taking off in South America. They are aggressively capitalist, and they are—they're um, inviting Muslims, at least one Muslim actually, into their community to try to broaden uh, the monotheistic base of capitalism. And that Muslim that they invited was Faisal Abdul Rauf's father, uh, Muhammad Abdul Rauf. And he was new to the United States. He was not very um, savvy when it came to the politics of what was going on among religious communities or racial communities in the United States. So he was trying to gain acceptance for Muslims and navigate all these waters and currents that he could not fully understand, that he was not aware of. And he um, basically writes this narrative, this progress history of Muslims that aligns with this very conservative neoliberal progress history that these catholics and jews have written uh, and it not only elides purposefully the more social welfare conceptions of real religion it elides the experiences of all these other americans who have not benefited from social welfare legislation actually like these other people have um, and uh, and portrays a very narrow slice of the american populace as being the truly religious truly successful truly civilized ones um, And that's what Faisal Abdul Raouf was drawing from, those authors, his father's work with them in creating his own narrative. So although he wasn't trying to replicate um, these these racial or religious exclusions, um, by mapping Islam onto any version, he was going to do so. And by mapping it onto this version in particular, he did so in, in very pointed ways.
1: So let's continue this uh, vein of thought, uh, uh, Rosemary, and uh, uh, talk a bit about uh, Faisal Abdul is rauf one of the major figures uh, who occupies uh, uh, th- this book. Uh, could you say a bit more about, um, I mean, you show throughout this book sort of ways in which his thinking on questions of religion and the relationship between uh, Islam and, and American uh, democracy and exceptionalism uh, sort of shifted over time, but there is a certain kind of... Uh, a larger thread that connects his thinking uh, throughout his career. So could you reflect a bit more on his thoughts on these questions of assimilation and, uh, and 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 the kind of Islam that he articulated? And you show very interestingly in one of the chapters that at on some occasions while he was engaged in a kind of a polemic with these neoconservative or rather conservative uh, sort of Islamophobic voices like uh, Newt Gingrich's, uh, but when it came to key questions on how they approached the question of American ex- exceptionalism and its uh, interaction with religion, there were some striking similarities also between the seemingly opposed uh, figures. So if you could also uh, fold that uh, train of uh, thought into your into your reflection on Rauf and his project.
0: Sure, thank you. Um, that's right. That's, I, it's seemingly ironic that uh, you know the that- Cordoba House, which was the name of the um, the first name of the Islamic Center project, controversy uh, brings out of the woodwork uh, figures like Newt Gingrich, who um, who Faisal rauf actually has a lot in common with on on a particular level, and I'll elaborate on that in a moment. I just want to make sure everybody remembers Newt Gingrich, who was the Speaker of the House of Representatives in the 1990s, and he was the one who was really responsible for um, For the Republican takeover of Congress in the 1990s and for um, on a family values platform and and kind of a rightward turn in American policy, even among uh, Democrats, a more centrist to rightward turn, especially economically. Um, He fell out of favor in the late 90s uh, after 84 counts of ethics violations, um, and he converted to Catholicism after he fell out of favor in politics and, and kind of tried to reinvent himself. And this moment of the Cordoba House controversy provided him with the possibility of, of, he thought, entering um, the public arena again in a a new way. During the intervening years, the intervening decades, um, he had been working at the American Enterprise Institute with the the same scholars that Faisal Abdelrahouf's father had been working with um, to talk about, you know, America's exceptionalist history, this history of progress, this beacon to the nations, etc., So he comes out during the Cordoba House controversy saying that this vision of Cordoba is not um, a vision of, you know, convivencia, as as the Spanish might say, of of the history of Cordoba as this um, interreligious exemplar. But it's this history of Islamic conquest over a Christian territory. And that's what he wants to emphasize as the narrative of Cordoba. And he's very committed to just the Judeo-Christian interpretation of the United States, not the fuller Abrahamic one. But despite this, because he um, and Raouf are both drawing from, particularly from this Catholic uh, neoliberal named Michael Novak, who actually just passed away uh, last week, I think they're both drawing from his economic work and from his progress history. They're replicating um, certain ideas about what uh, the American, the heart of America is, what real religion is in America, what um, the American experiment is supposed to, Prove and show, and this is exceptionally apparent in um, the portion of Rauf's book that discusses corporations and um, and the way corporate structure and corporations are ideal, and the way um, economies in the Middle East need to give up their centralized attempts at centralized economic planning and and devote themselves more to a free market structure. And and it's very clear that um, when you read his book that that American Muslims are not just supposed to be moderate in a certain way. They're supposed to um, export this moderation in political and economic terms to other countries. And this version of of economic moderation and political moderation is very close to these neoliberal and neoconservative ideas with the giant exception of course of Palestine. Of course they do not agree on Palestine um, and on, on a few other aspects. But, But economically, they're incredibly close. And it's because of this shared history they have. And I don't think either of them recognize it. I'm quite certain, actually, that (laughs) that neither of them recognized it um, in those contentious uh, times around the 2010 controversy.
1: So now let's move to another key uh, aspect of this book, which is um, the idea of presenting Sufism as uh, the best uh, articulation of uh, moderate Islam that would be compatible with uh, American values and the landscape of American uh, politics and religion and so on. Um, and you do a brilliant job in the book of really showing historically and discursively how this happens and 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 way and the sort of the longer history of this phenomenon that actually predates 9/11 is something that you show quite convincingly uh, in the book. Uh, so could you uh, walk us through some of these major historical and discursive processes through which Sufism comes to be positioned as this quintessential moderate Islam that is then also championed uh, by figures like uh, Abd
0: Sure, um, this Sure. Sufism is one of those strands that kind of um, emerges, it weaves through the book, and it, it drops out a little bit at certain points um, because it drops out of Faisal Abdul Rauf's self-presentation as a moderate at, at one point. Um, in 2006, uh, he really starts devoting himself To more international work centered around Islamic law and and positioning himself as an authority on um, Islamic law. And of course, because Sufism is contested among Muslim communities around the world, uh, Sufi credentials aren't going to really help him there. Um, But, and in fact, the Asma Society that he and his wife founded was originally the American Society, or excuse me, the American Sufi Muslim Association. And in 2006, they changed the name of it to the American Society for Muslim Advancement. Um, but after the Cordoba House controversy, um, when it becomes apparent that a lot of Americans really do think that Sufis are the moderate Muslims, and that there's this strong framing around that, they they somewhat return to emphasizing Sufism again. To um, partly because they've been Sufis the entire time, and Ralph has led his Sufi community to some extent for the entire time, but also because it's it's now advantageous again. So it's it's neither strictly it's not strictly strategic. It's also sincere, but it is strategic. Um, but anyhow, so um, so in the book, I focus mainly on kind of the cultural history of Sufism in the United States as something that has uh, that begins to intrigue people in the mid 19th century, not politically, uh, more culturally, although it has these political ramifications elsewhere. And it's it's drawing political ramifications from colonial territories where the British, for example, think that Sufis are are the less Legalistic, and they're more likely the ones that you can um, that you can partner with to to oust other Muslim authorities, such as the Ulama. Um, or, you know, in Turkey, there's reverse debates after Atatürk comes into power, and, and Sufis are now the unenlightened ones. So there's there are all these political ramifications um, that inform the history of of Raouf's positions. But as far as the US government is concerned and US culture is concerned, Americans begin dabbling in the mid 19th century, early 20th century. Um, And then we have the the counterculture movement of the 60s that everybody's very familiar with. Um, And it's not until the 1990s, really, that uh, individuals in the State Department get seriously interested after um, Sheikh Khabani, this uh, Lebanese American now Sheikh. Uh, goes to a State Department gathering in 1999 and claims that he's visited um, hundreds of mosques and 80-90% like of them are filled with extremists. And he's, of course, trying to create allies for Sufis by making this claim, um, but they take him very seriously. And this informs the Clinton White House and State Department, the Bush White House and State Department, and then the Obama White House and State Department. Um, and Rauf is benefiting from this in his early years, um, being known as a Sufi leader. He benefits from that as he's beginning to make inroads to try to to, um, undertake a larger project of of healing the divide, as he would say, between uh, Islam and the West. Um, And he works first with, when he first enters political work, he works first with the Republican administration, the George W. Bush uh, State Department, um, before working with the Obama State Department. And possibly more than I would say the Obama state department. Um, and he's very intent on trying to also, um, heal these divides while keeping these channels open for Sufis. Um, but what I don't talk about in, in this book is some of the stuff that was in originally the longer dissertation, which is something that I'm going back to, uh, which is how the ideal of Sufis as the moderate Muslims, um, Really draws out of attempts of earlier scholars and figures to identify Sufis as the "quote-unquote" modern Muslims um, during the early years of the Cold War, and I've published on this elsewhere and refer to it in the book um, uh, on, you know, Wilfred Cantwell Smith's work at McGill and uh, being there with Fazlur Rahman and Ismail al-Faruqi, who of course disagreed with their ideas, and and Cantwell Smith's uh, later. Connections to Sayyid Hussein Nasser, who's influential in this as well. Um, and it's really it's really this period when um, Sufis are are depicted as the moderate or excuse me, the modern Muslims who can bring overly legalistic Arab Muslims into you know, the modern century, into the modern global community. Um, that sets the framework for what happens in the State Department years later. And, and Fasl Rahman, he maintains connections with the State Department, although he's not mentioned in the book. He maintains connections with the State Department um, throughout his life. He dies in the early 80s, but you know, he was a, in various projects working on promoting Sufism to some extent um, throughout that time. And so as I mentioned, I'm going back to that now. I'm, I'm working on a piece for a volume I'm co-editing with Kathy Ewing on um, Islam and or excuse me, Sufism in India and Pakistan. And my piece looks at the American private foundations such as the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation who funded some of this stuff before area studies institutes had been created um, in public institutions of higher education who were funding this and, and looking at what these foundation officers thought they were doing, thought they were trying to cultivate, why they were picking scholars who were enamored of Sufism to influence these debates among policymakers with whom they were, very um, closely connected.
1: Now, one of the major strengths of this book, uh, Rosemary, is that uh, at the same time as you're, you know, critically engaged with the, this whole uh, moderation discourse emanating from uh, the Sufi community or the, the broader community of the roof, you also do a very uh, finely grained. Uh, ethnographic um, study of this movement and its order which shows the internal diversity and the tensions and the disagreements also uh, in rather um, fascinating light. Uh, So could you uh, talk a bit about these internal tensions and debates within Rauf's community on the question of moderation, on what moderation entailed and uh, what was the the shape or the nature of an ideal Muslim subject in the post 9-11 US context?
0: Sure. Um there were there were various fishers of course um there were many people who who agreed with Rauf um and and I I know um many people call him Abdul Rauf I call him Rauf because that's how he began to be spoken of in public discourse more broadly but um, more properly as you say his name should be Abdul Rauf um but there were many people who agreed with their Sheikh and wanted to live up to the ideal that he was presenting and it was I think, very aspirational for a lot of them. Um, But it required this ideal, this American exceptionist ideal of being a moderate Muslim in these terms required a certain amount of um, financial backing, to put it simply, um, and and a certain amount of racial privilege and gender privilege. Um, And so we see in the community that um, people's lives don't necessarily match the life that Abdul Rauf has been able to uh, leave because he's, the son, he was the son of a of high profile imam who was a quasi diplomat. Um, and he, you know, was, um, his partner, Daisy Khan, was um, a cor- involved in corporate um, architecture and design before uh, she became the director of the Osma Society. And so they're living a, a life that is more affluent than many of the people in their mosque. Um, and they are moving in circles where, um, they're encountering less of the friction produced by by institutionalized racism and economic exclusions and things like that. And so. At the mosque, we see, you know, what what many people are familiar with in American Muslim communities, we see a very um, interethnic ethnic uh, mix of people there are Senegalese Sufis, you know, from. Who mostly live in Harlem and are are coming there because they work nearby on Canal Street. There are Pakistani importers, there are um, cab drivers, there are are people, and there are African American Muslims who are, um, you know, their families may have or friends may have been involved in the Nation at one time, and they are now um, involved in different Sufi orders uh, and Euro American converts. And we see all of these people. negotiating for position, not 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 intentionally, necessarily. They're not jockeying for position. They're just trying to negotiate their place, trying to live what they feel is an authentically balanced life, which is what most of them would say um, in the United States under the pressure of late capitalism or neoliberal capitalism. And we see in the midst of my research, you know, this the economic recession, the largest recession since the Great Depression of 2007 happened. Um, and a lot of the people at the mosque actually have to leave because they um, are on work visas they're young cosmopolitan immigrants and working in finance, and then they 're gone um, But we see the tensions produced by people who are trying to really trying to formulate um, what it means to be a moderate Muslim or an ideal Muslim and American at a time when they 're under intense scrutiny and they know it um, and so they are trying to their language among themselves is trying to present themselves as moderate in terms of not being fanatical and in in the wrong way, not being overly cultural, especially that's where that's the language that most of this takes on is inappropriately cultural Muslims are those who um, are too concerned with the minutia of the tradition, like, like the young men who will come in with their pant legs rolled up above their ankles. You know, those are the ones that are easily identifiable or even speaking with the wrong kind of comportment. Um, But, that's one kind of pressure that they're speaking against. But others are also feeling that, that Islam should be more robust in this social welfare tradition kind of way, that there should be a certain kind of community that's not just a free market capitalist community. And that also has its um, tensions brought into the the community, because. As some as some argue, they feel that um Successful, highly su- successful immigrants are imbibing in American racism, and they are believing the stereotypes about black criminality and um, and laziness and all of these things that have been used to justify um, dispossession of black Americans. And they believe that there's this community should be more robust in taking care of people and taking care of each other, but that there's this problem um, that Maduro's narrative of American exceptionalism doesn't help. Um, and they speak to this in different ways, and then uh of course there are just tensions over gender and what it means to be moderate in gendered terms and um Abdul Raouf and Izzy Khan are very uh liberal and they believe that the US has fulfilled its liberal promise in guaranteeing racial equality, gender equality, etc. but the people in the masjid are not feeling those um that those promises are fulfilled and so they're trying to position themselves as authentically Muslim, authentically American, um, and to, and to um, carve out a niche for their experiences as legitimate without disrupting all the other uh, experiences that other people are bringing under these incredibly stressful conditions where everybody is being pressed to prove they're not a fanatic. When everybody's being pressed to prove they're not a terrorist and they're, they're aware of it. Uh, and so it's a very fraught, uh, time and I try to capture some of the fine details of all of those
1: interactions and exchanges. Let's uh, shift to the Park 51 controversy. And one of the things that you argue in that context is that the eruption of this controversy, uh, which uh, sort of brings the focus of attention on Abdul and uh, uh, Daisy Khan and so on, uh, this also leads to, to continue this theme of and tensions uh, between Rauf and other uh, Muslim communities uh, uh, in the U.S. Uh, could you speak about a bit about that theme? And if you could also connect it to this other discussion, another sort of strand of thought that uh, uh, runs across your book, which is on this whole idea of community service being valorized as the main marker of a properly assimilated religious community and how that um, uh, kind of a narrative and the problems with that narrative also came into light uh, in the aftermath of the Path 51 uh, controversy. So if you could sort of fold those two uh, parts of your argument together.
0: Sure. So the community service also is, is something like Sufism that is kind of interwoven through because by the, first of all, it's it's an element in um, Rauf's narrative of assimilation, just like Newt Gingrich both believe, as, as do many um, neoliberals uh, that I spoke about, that these immigrants of previous generations assimilated partly by creating um, welfare institutions, voluntary organizations that relieve the state of having to provide any benefits for citizens. So you can have a bare state, a free market, and these voluntary associations um, that that prop up those who are dispossessed with their services. Um, and, and that is for the neoliberals with whom, from whom Rove is drawing, that is the proper um, political framework, the political economy for the United States. Um, And so Rove is not significantly differing from this, um, but of course there are people in his community who are in various different positions. And not only are they um, feeling that there should be broader, more more robust social welfare, be it state-led or community-led, they're also feeling that there should be more room for political protest. And we see this uh, at one point, as I mentioned, um, in 2006, prior to the, The controversies that we've seen recently over that have inspired the creation of um, the Black Lives Matter movement, we saw in New York repeated um, police brutality against uh, black American and black immigrant uh, populations, including the the murder of um, a black American man the night before his wedding an unarmed black American man the night before his wedding by police officers. Um, and so there's no, for the people within the community, they, they are trying to present themselves as balanced, i.e. moderate, um, authentically American while getting what they need in terms of social welfare while getting what they need in terms of, um, basic safety sometimes, uh, and, uh, and the ability to protest these injustices. And when, when the, um, Islamic center controversy takes off after, Uh, Rauf and Khan and some of their dervishes uh, buy the property and create the structure for building this, um, the figurative structure for building this Islamic center. When it takes off, um, they bill it as this place. That's going to be not just a place of um, religious meditation or worship or anything else, but a place of services that was really the main um, emphasis they had. And part of that was because the developer wanted to get grants from, part of it is because they sincerely believed that they wanted to be part of their community and serve their community, first and foremost. Um, and I heard Sufis talk about doing this in, in different ways, from staffing soup kitchens to you know, building a green establishment, um, since I'd been there, it, involved in ethnography in this community. But part of it was because the developer wanted uh, grants from the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation also to help finance the, the building of this structure. And so these two things come to be kind of at odds. Um, Abrof and and Daisy Khan are are very popular among um, interreligious elites, but they have spent less time working with other Muslim communities uh, since 9-11. They mostly are trying to build bridges. They're interreligious, not intrareligious bridges. And they also, as I mentioned, have a very particular experience of life and they are not necessarily attuned to other people's needs. And the developers, their dervishes with whom they create this project um, have, are also living a a rather rarefied life as far as um, New York city goes. And so they begin to promote this place as a place of service, which is something that religious minorities have done, promoted this narrative of service as proof of their Americanness. Um, But they do it, in a way that uh, other religious communities, including other Muslims, feel alienated by, which is to say that they say that they're going to offer deeply needed services in the lower Manhattan community, but this includes a yoga center and a Pilates studio and, you know, Spanish classes. And meanwhile, we're still beginning the recovery from the economic recession that's devastated lots of economies, and according to post-recession estimates, that's wiped out three generations of economic gains among black American communities. So this this attempt that they're making to um, authentically to serve their community, um, but also um, to be accepted, is um, is deepening tensions that have been festering, you know, since 9/11 about what it means to be a moderate Muslim, what the American Muslim community should look like, what members of the community should provide to each other, and how they should relate to. Um, to the government, how, where political protests should be, all these kinds of things. And these divisions really, um, prevent many other Muslim Americans in the area from defending them when they come under scrutiny, because it seems to be a very rarefied vision of community service of what it means to serve. Um, and it, it also contributes to tensions among the leaders where under the pressure brought by this controversy, um, Imam Faisal really thinks of of the community center as a place of um, interreligious exchange it's going to be muslim led but it's going to be interreligious exchange and he's very comfortable saying let's just shift to the interreligious multi faith aspect and his dervishes um, the ones who have bought the property feel that they have been listening to his his khutbas for years about how Americans muslims are can be ideal americans demonstrating true pluralism and true Americanness and true patriotism. And they think we're just as American as anybody else. We're not changing this to an interfaith institution. We are keeping this a Muslim led institution. This is an Islamic institution. And we're going to prove that that's as American as anything else. And so that contributes to a rift among the actual leaders of the project, not just the leaders of the project in the larger community. Um, And it ultimately, unfortunately contributes to the, um, the inability of, to present a coherent message and to fundraise, um, at some point, which, which undermine the project. But the larger stakes of this is something that I conclude the book on is that, um, the vision of, even if you are engaging in a different kind of community service, this, uh, this community service that does provide more robust social welfare, um, in ways that the George W. Bush White House heavily promoted in ways that the Obama White House heavily promoted, uh, even if you are doing that, um, partly as a way of trying to gain acceptance and, and to serve your community, you, you have to be aware of the politics of it. And the politics go back to this narrative of, Amer- of American exceptionalism, this narrative of progress, where if those who are promoting and providing service are the ones who can afford to do so economically, and this is their means of entering the mainstream, then they are leaving in a marginalized position, those who are in need of services, not because they are, you know, lazy, not because they are um, not because they are not progressive, not because of any of these things, but because the u s economy has been built on racial exclusions systemically um, and other kinds of exclusions. and so there's the the happy note that I end on is that um there are Muslim American communities that have been recognizing this. one of them is um one of the organizations I point to is The recent Empower Collective, um, who has been the members of which have been um, allying across races, across economic, across religious traditions. But of course, there's precedent for that in. um, In the uh, inner city Muslim Action Network and other things like that, but that's um, I see that as something that's gaining more steam. It was it's a lesson that I hope was learned more broadly um, during that controversy, but it's gaining more steam and, and in this. Newly nativist time that we're experiencing, um, I'm hoping it's the dominant strand. It becomes the dominant strand, but we shall see.
1: So as we're approaching the end of our time, uh, Rosemary, could you share uh, what's the next project uh, that you're thinking of working on? Sure. You working uh, as,
0: as I mentioned, the, the next project is going back to some of the research that I did before on on Wilfred Cantwell Smith and um, Ismail al-Faruqi and Fazad Rahman and and what they believed they were promoting um and what they were thinking they were um creating when they were trying to work on presenting sufism as as the modern islam for the new american century for the new global century and in their words they were not necessarily wedded to at all to american interests um they were not opposed to them but that was not their primary focus but um, I've been doing a lot of research in the private foundation records to see what, as I mentioned, what um, foundation officers thought they were sponsoring. And these foundation officers, most of them, the high- level ranking ones, were ones who'd come out of um, Truman's Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor to the CIA. Uh, so they were military, they were political, they were they were all these things and then they began funding um, research into Islam and, and particular Islamic subjectivities. Um, So that's the work that I'm returning to
1: now. Making Moderate Islam, Sufism, Service, and the Ground Zero Mosque Controversy by Rosemary Corbett, published by Stanford University Press in 2017. Uh, Thank you so much, Rosemary, for this extensive conversation and for such a brilliant and lyrical book. Yeah, it was a pleasure reading it and a pleasure talking to you about it uh, during this interview. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I so appreciate it. So this was my conversation with Rosemary Corbett on her wonderful new book, Making Moderate Islam. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareed, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.